I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Today, I am here with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. James Lyons-Weiler is the founder and CEO of the Institute of Pure and Applied Knowledge, and he has been extremely critical of the CDC's response to the coronavirus. So I thought I would get him on the program and talk to him about all the facts that he can give us in regards to COVID-19. I hope you find it informative and interesting. Okay, I am here with Dr. James Lyons Wheeler. I hope I said that right. Wheeler, is that correct? No, it's, it's Weiler. Weiler, okay, I'm sorry. All right. Also known as Dr. Jack. I can say that. I know I can pronounce that correctly. <laughs> oh. Dr. Jack, the first time I heard you was on Holistic Health uh, Masterclass with Brett Hawes. And you had some really interesting outlooks, not only on uh, the coronavirus, but the potentiality of a vaccination and the, the failing of testing the previous SARS vaccination on animals prior to giving it to humans. Can you, can you give us a little breakdown on that before we really get into the CDC? Absolutely. So the coronavirus has been coming into the human population. It's the common cold. Everybody's had the common cold. And, you know, it's a big mystery about why this one appeared to have such a high uh, case fatality rate uh, in Wuhan, China. Um, when COVID-19 first took place there and took hold, there was not just a high case fatality rate, but the actual rate of spread was, you know, off the charts compared to SARS from 2003. And, you know, diabetics have had, uh, it was calculated diabetics had a 6.3% mortality risk if they were infected. And I know there's a lot of debate and discussion about, well, a lot of people get the common cold, a lot of people get coronavirus, and so you have to adjust for that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the population-wide rate. I'm talking about if you know someone with diabetes and they get this virus, they have a 6.3% probability of dying. Mm. There's nothing like that out uh, on the ecological landscape of pathogens in the United States, except for Ebola, which has a 50% chance if you're infected of killing you. So um, when we even look at flu, the, the, there's only 4,500 cases of flu in the United States every year. The CDC cooks the books and tries to make us think there's about 60,000 um, cases a year, but they actually combine um, influenza with pneumonia. And by combining influenza with pneumonia, they inflated the flu statistics. So when this thing took off, it looked like it was really a serious problem. And so I started tracking it very closely every day and getting into not just the epidemiology of it, but also the molecular biology of the virus, trying to understand the origins um, and trying to understand what factors could explain this unusual case fatality rate. And so one of the things that I ran into is something that was being called immune enhancement, and it's actually disease enhancement, that if you uh, vaccinate animals against SARS or MERS, uh, the Middle, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, um, and then challenge them with uh, exposure to the natural uh, virus, you end up with enhanced 
disease. It's called enhanced immunopathology, where the, the virus uh, seems to do a lot of damage to the vaccinated individuals in those studies. And so there was coincidence or reality, I'm not sure, but the CDC, uh, the CDC in China started vaccinating the entire population on December 1st and a new mandatory vaccination program. We saw it coming. We saw December 1st, 2019, we saw it coming, uh, saw the notices of this you know, uh, in the previous year. But, um, you know, then to have coronavirus start being pathogenic, uh, it, it, my, uh, my concept at the time was that perhaps China had conducted a large phase two or phase three clinical trial in the Wuhan uh, area in the Hubei province. And we can't know that whether it's whether they did or they didn't. They, only the CCP knows what they put into the, uh, the vaccines that they were giving people at the time. But it, it seems that, you know, that there's something off scale with this virus. And so uh, I put up for the hypothesis that perhaps the first hypothesis was that there might be um, a vaccination program and that, and that the Chinese people in the vaccination program were at higher risk of immunopathology, something I've subsequently recast as um, pathogenic priming. I, I work at the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And if you check the journal of translational autoimmunity, we now have a, a paper that's uh, published on pathogenic priming. And this pathogenic priming specifically um, says that if you're exposed to this virus's proteins, that there's something about the proteins that makes the human immune system uh, overreact on the one hand, but at the same time become impaired at the, uh, at the other. And I'll tell you about why there's two possibilities here. The first way it might overreact is that this virus once you get infected with it, you have four to five days of asymptomatic transmission. Well, that means you have four to five days where you have the virus, but it's, it's in your body, it's replicating, but it doesn't appear to be pathogenic at all. You might have some more mild symptoms, but you absolutely don't, don't seriously feel ill. And then you can be sick for up to 18 days before you have to be hospitalized. So right there, we're already talking a 22 you know, to 24 day period where you, um, the virus has taken hold and it's in your body. Mm. Um, and then after that, there's some studies that suggest that you may be spreading. If you recover, you may be spreading the virus for another 18 days in your feces. So we're talking about a month and a half of uh, viral infection, which is unusual for something like a respiratory virus. Um, and that explains, I think, in large part why it would spread so rapidly were it not for proper testing which we'll get to in a while, and contact tracing, uh, the standard methods of epidemiologic control. This thing can spread freely for four to five days before anybody knows they have it. So this pathogenic priming, to me, it seems like it's uh, autoimmunity from exposure to a virus um, that's evolving in your body. It actually has a high mutation rate. Um, and and so you have sufficient time of exposure to develop autoimmunity. So we looked at the proteins that are in the virus and all of the proteins that have the ability to um, elicit an immune response uh, from the human immune system 
um, except for one. Uh, there's one. There's one protein that, that has the ability to elicit immune response, but all of them except for one uh, have parts of their protein that match human proteins. And this means that these, these matches in human proteins of different tissues um, are candidates for autoimmunity through biomimicry or bi uh, biological mimicry, where the, the immune system becomes confused. And we know that this happens routinely uh, in humans from exposure to viruses. We also know it happens routinely, you know, I don't mean every day, but it happens consistently, I should say, in humans from vaccination. An example of that is the autoimmunity against the, um, the sleep-wake cycle regulator uh, pathway, uh, orexin, and the orexin receptor uh, following the swine flu vaccination in Europe, where some families, because they had a mutation that made their orexin receptor appear to be shaped like the vi viral protein in swine flu, they lost their orexin receptor because the immune system would blast it out. And so they, they, they have narcolepsy. So this, then we also see Guillain-Barre syndrome that's known to happen from influenza infection or injection. So it's not as though this is a, a new idea, but pathogenic priming is a new way to look at it because you're actually responsible for priming a, an animal or a human if you ex willingly expose them to the antigen source, uh, knowing that later on in an infection, they might develop uh, severe morbidity and mortality through you know, worse immunopathology. Um, seven, no, 11, sorry. 11 of the proteins that may be targeted by SARS-CoV-2 uh, pathogenic priming uh, are very key immune system proteins, very important immune system proteins. So we may be sit sitting on top of a, a new era in the pathogenesis from viruses where we have a path. You know, HIV is hard to spread. You have to have truly intimate contact. Ebola is too deadly. Well, this, this virus is like in a sweet spot in the middle zone where it's just transmissible enough and just lethal enough. And we may have some severely immunocompromised, huge parts of our, our population may become severely immunocompromised and at high risk of coronavirus uh, morbidity and mortality. And so, you know, I, I, I walk the walk and I talk the talk, Tommy, and, and, and I look at all the data and I do my own studies. I publish my own peer-reviewed research and, and it looks like this is a bad actor that we should be concerned about, both either, either from injection or infection. And so the relative risk calculations that we should be doing include, is it riskier to vaccinate everyone and prime them or to try to fight this with social distancing and uh, therapeutics, a combination of social distancing and therapy, heavy, heavy therapeutics mm -hmm. uh, and isolating the right people and testing. And so right. all these factors and variables are put together in the United States wrong right now. They're actually quite backwards. We have no reliable testing because the CDC's test was flawed. It got away from us. There's no real contact tracing and they're using the wrong kind of tests. They're using RT-PCR tests, which only tell us if you have an active infection. They don't tell you whether or not you're immune. So we need antibody tests, which um, I'm, I'm advocating very heavily for private in-home testing so people can know their COVID-19 current status, if they're infected or not, then they can also know if they've already been exposed and they're immune and they can go back to work tomorrow. If there's a sensible way to solve this, it's a rational uh, solution. Um, but you know, the, the models that I've conducted tell me that we could end this in three weeks in the United States for all intents and purposes with 
three weeks of lockdown, intense lockdown, maybe 60% of the population was pretty intense for the United States and extensive widespread therapeutics. And I mean, high dose vitamin C and D and A and all of that, as well as the uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, I've been advocating for that since about February. So I saw this coming and I'm like, you listen, you guys, you gotta, if you're going to do a lockdown, you got to do it hard, but brief and then treat everyone prophylactically and test the hell out of everyone. So they know what's happening to them. And the people who have not been exposed are for, you know, of their own accord, not reporting to the government, but of their own accord would know that, okay, I'm, I'm not going to infect anyone and they do the right, the morally upright thing. Um, and so those home tests are probably coming in spite of the way that the FDA and the CDC have rigged the game so that the right companies make the right money because you have to go through um, a biomedical facility to get the RT-PCR testing. But pretty soon, I think uh, it'll be a matter of routine where people go to CVS, do a, a 5 or $10 test, um, go home, prick their finger, do it in their car or whatever, and they'll know their, their COVID-19 status. They don't have to report it. I'm totally against these uh, immunity, immunity IDs that they think they're gonna get from the vaccine. They skipped over the vaccine safety trials in animals for SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, and we're gonna stop them dead in their tracks because uh, the pathogenic priming manuscript, that study actually shows which epitopes they should exclude from their vaccines. And everybody needs to get a copy of that manuscript and send it to their legislators, send it to their doctors. They need to send it to their, you know, people that they know that, that want to get this vaccine without animal safety studies and say, listen, this could be, we're committing economic suicide right now. We also don't want to commit literal suicide um, by injecting ourselves with a vaccine that hasn't been safety tested for pathogenic priming in animals. Right. Whenever, um, whenever you look at, at how it, this is all being handled, do you uh and you've looked at all the data on on the virus and and what it's actually doing is there any part of you that believes or is there any reason that anybody should believe that this virus was intentionally created to 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 sit in that sweet sweet spot as you had put it right so the there is no smoking gun evidence in the genome or in the protein sequences that would point to genetic manipulation. Originally, I had thought that there might be because I found in the genome sequence of the first sequences that came out, the researchers who published that genome sequence um, had identified a sequence that they could not trace to anything in any living organism. And these were Chinese researchers. Another independent set of researchers outside of China also looked at the data and they could not identify that stretch of protein coding DNA. So what I did was I, instead of searching in living organisms, I looked in uh, another database, a database of uh, biological entities, which are sequences of proteins and nucleotides that are artificial. They're, excuse me, used routinely in genetic recombination experiments. And I found that there was a match to P-Shuttle SN. P-Shuttle SN, is a vector technology that allows people in laboratories to move genes in and out of uh, bacteria and thereby by viruses, by, um, causing recombination with the viruses. And, and, you can, and, and they can do it in animals too, but the, the point being, um, that was the only data that I had. So I had made an announcement that I think that this is the most likely. It, I, you know, I was very certain, I was about 95% certain that 
since no one else could find out what this thing was and the P shuttle SN sitting right there and it looks like it, part of the P shuttle SN was left behind or whatever. Well, it turned out that the P shuttle SN sequence was part of a spike protein, which is really interesting. So then I turned to my old domain of, of, of expertise, phylogenetics, where I can reconstruct the evolutionary history and find out which sequences are related to which and which sequences might be you know, sisters to other sequences, uh, close relatives and so on. And I did this massive phylogenetic hunt. It took me about a week and a half. And I did this uh, epidemio um, phylodynamics epidemiology um, study to, to try to see, uh, can I rule out P shuttle SN? Is there other things that are more closely related? Um, are the, does the phylogenetic tree or the family tree of the virus actually say that, that this thing came from or was involved with P shuttle SN? And it turns out that it's not related to P shuttle SN at all. P shuttle SN was used by the Chinese in some cancer studies, um, but it, it actually has a very different structural um, domain architecture. The, 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 the spike protein that's in SARS-CoV-2 has a unique characteristic fingerprint of a spike protein functional motif pattern. And what that means in English is that there are parts, bits and parts of the spike protein, which is on the outside of the virus, um, that actually um, has functional elements within it that are not found in the other beta coronaviruses and they're not found in SARS. It turns out that the phylogenetic story tells us that SARS is the sister to SARS-CoV-2. We don't know which came first in nature. We, I believe it, was, it evolved in nature because I found a SARS-CoV-2-like sequence that the Chinese didn't know was a SARS-CoV-2-like sequence. They thought it was SARS, and uh, it back way back in 2005. So if the Chinese had this sequence or a sequence very similar to it back in 2005 and didn't know that its, that its spike protein was functionally related, and it came from the anus of a bat in Hong Kong, then there's no reason to add another layer of complexity and say, well, this is uh, genetically manipulated. I want to be clear that that does not rule out that the Chinese laboratories and American laboratories uh, were, you know, were absolutely studying this virus before they knew they were studying it. But it, it doesn't mean that, it, that we can rule out that, it, that they didn't realize that it was something new. They'd actually published that they found something like this that was new and distinct. Uh, and the most straightforward interpretation is they're telling the world that there's a novel coronavirus in bats that might come into humans and we're worried about it. Next thing you know, you've got somebody that's cleaning a lab cage uh, taking out the trash or something. They're not expert in the biological safety laboratory practices. They become infected, they bring it home, and, and you're off to the races. Uh, it's even possible that this is a novel virus that evolved through recombination with SARS or, or by that person infecting someone else that had a SARS, uh, active SARS um, Infection, because the biology of this virus is such, these viruses, if you have MERS and SARS in the same person, or if you have SARS and SARS-CoV-2 in the same person, they're going to recombine 100%. The question is, do you get a viable, more transmissible, more deadly virus? Not always. So, you know, the recombination is built into the biology of the virus. So it's no big surprise that we see novel coronaviruses. Um, so I would rule out biological uh, warfare. I would rule out bioweaponry. But I can't rule out that it's an accidental laboratory release. No one can. At this point, no one can. Yeah. Okay.
that's uh that's revealing it if nothing else and it, it gives people something else to think about because I've, I've heard i've read and i've heard a lot of people talking about the potentiality of it being a biological warfare um well people can go to my website uh, the the ipac website is ipanotice.org there's an entire research report written there that mm. lays out all the phylogenetic analysis that i did it, it includes a publication of the phylogenetic tree it includes the characteristic functional motif pattern and if you look at that pattern you can see none of the beta protoviruses have that pattern sars corona sars virus doesn't sars coronavirus doesn't and most importantly none of the artificial technologies none of the synthetic sequences um, that are in the databases have that architecture so i think it's an old more deadly virus that when it came into humans prior to this, it killed people and it didn't spread. There's something that makes it hang on longer now with an asymptomatic period, and mm -hmm. that, that's what evolution would do. It's perfectly consistent with natural selection, evolution by mutation followed by natural selection. But, you know, we concentrate these viruses in the lab and, you know, I'm convinced that it's a laboratory transfer, mostly because it happened six times uh, in China and other laboratories for, from with SARS. They, right. and, and that led to the moratorium. It was the, people don't know this, it wasn't just the fact that Ralph Barrick at UNC could actually create a chimeric gain of function uh, virus and do so to make it more able to infect mice in the lab. He didn't do that to make it more infective. He did this so he could study the properties of the virus. But, um, you know, the, the remarkable thing is that we have a lot of viruses in labs who really don't know their full function. We're, we're messing around with gain-of-function studies, making them more lethal, more transmissible, and we really don't know what the consequences of that are if there's a laboratory accident. But the whole moratorium existed and started, not just because we could do gain-of-function studies, but because there were so many laboratory-escaped viruses, it, it looked like it was just a doomsday, doomsday scenario. So under those conditions, you know, if you look at Fukushima, you know, if you, if you look at Chernobyl and you ask what's the probability of a nuclear meltdown that could wipe out, you know, hundreds of millions of people on this planet, the probability is pretty close to one. People want to say oh, nuclear, nuclear energy is safe. Okay. Well, except for this day in Chernobyl or except for that day in Fukushima. Or except for this day on three mile, you know, it, pretty soon it's like we have to look at planetary safety. And mm. I'm not a globalist by any means, I'm quite the opposite, but we do have to act locally uh, and, and think globally. We have to make sure that we don't do things that are quite stupid, that are going to put all of the rest of our species, humanity, and our progeny, our grandchildren, and our great great grandchildren at, 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 at a great peril. So, what's the probability of a laboratory release of? <laughs> a natural virus from a lab it's one it's already happened mm. there's, no, there's no game over what's the probability of a genetically engineered virus escaping the lab it's got, got to be pretty close to one if it hasn't already happened so right. um, it's just that we're not very good at, at, at safety mm -hmm. one of the things are, are, are that stood out to me in, in some of the research and the articles that you've been writing is the effects of the influenza vaccine on uh, on this virus and it, it appears and I, I could be wrong and misinterpreting this i am definitely not a scientist or a doctor so that's why you're here um it appears that 
the if if you have accepted an influenza vaccine that you're more susceptible to this virus is that is that an accurate depiction of what what you're saying uh, yeah there's two ways to look at this so um, if you get the flu vaccine Ben Colling Dr. Ben Colling out of Hong Kong showed that uh, you're more likely to get an increased risk of non-influenza respiratory virus infections and that is um, I think it's through the, they, they, because they studied the Vaxagrip vaccine and the paperwork at the time said that it could be multi-dose or single dose. I think it's probably because uh, the effects of thimerosal, where thimerosal inhibits ERAP1. That's a protein that our body uses to fold immune systems properly. And so if you inhibit that protein, you're going to forget what you're immune to. And that's what I think is happening. Um, and then there's this idea of viral... Um, what is it, viral, um, I'm forgetting the word of it, but there's a mechanism in, in a uh, Department of Defense study where they said that having uh, uh, an injection against one virus makes you more susceptible to another because of some, something like viral inhibition or whatever. But um, So the, the point being, you, you can't study mechanisms of pathophysiology, that is the causes of disease from an epidemiological level of inquiry. You can't look at a population alone. You have to look at the molecular causes. You have to look at the cellular you know, infiltrations and things like that. And there's no such study that has actually said that it's, oh, I think it's called viral displacement or something. But um, that's a different mechanism than being more sensitive because in that, the responsibility, that is the plausibility, the liability falls on these viruses competing for you know, their host. But in reality, how we formulate vaccines determines their net effect on human health, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone acts like the flu vaccine, you know, I'll get it anyway, because it's not going to hurt you, but it might do you, a, a, it might give you an edge. In reality, if it causes an increased risk of respiratory virus infections, and at least in one study, it did show that there's an increased risk of coronavirus, not this coronavirus, right, but coronavirus in general, I think, um, or maybe it was this coronavirus. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't exactly remember. But the point being, um, if that's an option that you have, and the, the reason why you're getting the flu vaccine is because the CDC says there's 60,000 deaths a year, um, then you have to take a look at the statistics really closely. And from 2014, um, in 2014, CDC said that there were uh, 6,500 cases of flu that led to death in the United States and the rest up to 55,000, you know, the difference were for, for some 40,000 that make up the difference there um, were pneumonia caused by other things. In 2015, they started combining flu and pneumonia and that made flu disease, which is a construct, it's not a real thing. Flu disease includes pneumonia and influenza. Okay, and, and they're two different things. That'll, that, that combining of those statistics allowed them to create an artificial disease category that accounted for more than 7.3% of the deaths in um, the United States. And thereby they could say it was an epidemic and that allowed them to keep pushing for the flu vaccine. Well, now they have a problem because in, the, in our analysis of this, we're seeing that the number of deaths attributable to flu, of course, are plummeting because they're being more properly attributed to coronavirus. And so I wrote an article on a professional 
um, social network called LinkedIn that explains and describes how CDC is borrowing mortality from quote unquote influenza disease uh, um, for the deaths that they're attributing to coronavirus. So they're at risk of losing the flu vaccine program because of coronavirus, because it's going to fall below 7.3%. And they might not be able to mandate a coronavirus vaccine if we all insist that every person that died from respiratory virus illness has uh, a viral determination assay that says specifically which virus killed them. Not, you know, we need to know, is it RSV, is it flu, is it coronavirus? There's a, there's a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. and, and once we do that, then we'll have a better understanding of, you know, the, the need, necessity, risk, and so on. Uh, coronavirus may be one that nobody wants to ever get. It, it may be truly be 100 times worse than flu. At 4,500 deaths per, per year, flu is uh, nothing. Flu is nothing compared to what we're seeing so far with this. We've got 18,000 deaths as of yesterday. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's only... And it's only uh, March, right? So yeah, yeah, it is a April. Now you, uh, yeah, it is April. Oh goodness, uh, all this time is just running together on us. Um, you had a, you mentioned that LinkedIn article, and I, that's something I'm gonna I'm gonna link in the show notes if anybody's interested in looking at that. I, I found that very interesting. I read it two days ago, um, and and we we're getting to the part where we need to talk about the CDC and how badly they bungled the response and how they work in, um, in conglomeration with the FDA to, to hold on to this monopoly over the testing and um, the structure in, in the United States. And I believe it was in mid to late January, uh, a company in Berlin had come up with a test that was proven accurate to, to test for this particular strand of coronavirus. And um, they were already, they were exporting it by late January and the CDC and the FDA refused to import this test in order to create their own test, which turned out to be faulty. What, why, why does it work like that? What are they, why are they holding on to this monopoly in such a, such a tight fashion? Yeah, great question. So the test that you're talking about was the Germans RT-PCR test that would amplify the mRNA of the virus and tell you whether you had an active infection or not. And what the Germans had done, Tommy, was they, they actually took negative sputum samples from healthy people to determine whether this their test, which uh, you know, would artificially increase the number of uh, positive cases. And it turned out that it was extremely specific. It did not uh, have a high false positive rate. And then they did something that I thought was very clever. They actually created viral mRNA sequences in the lab, and, and they put those sequences into healthy sputum samples, so they spike them, and then they determine uh, the sensitivity of being able to detect uh, them in different samples with different doses of spiking. This is standard molecular biology technique for being able to prove that you're, you know, um, if you can't get natural samples with diagnoses attached to them. Uh, and then they also did something that was very clever, which is they took the CDs, sorry, they took their test, the, the uh, German test, um, and then they ran it against hundreds of samples of people that had other respiratory viruses. 
to make sure that it wasn't going to confuse COVID-19 with other respiratory virus illnesses like RSV and influenza and so on. And then they published this with the primer set to the World Health Organization, through the World Health Organization, and 141 countries had adopted it and said, yes, we're going to use it. Uh, the, CDC, the geniuses at the US CDC had decided that they had better make their own tests because they're supposed to be you know, the silverback gorilla in the United States, and everybody's supposed to submit their tests to the CDC for validation, which is the most ridiculous and, I think, unsafe bioweapon strategy that a country could think of. If you, if you put all of your eggs in one basket and say the CDC is it, oh, by the way, here's their street address, you know, somebody's really not thinking uh, national safety through. Uh, the CDC has a corrupt um, uh, culture. Uh, it's captured by regular, it's, it's a regulatory agency that's captured by, um, by pharmaceutical companies. They donate over $26 million a year through, to, through a government-run not-for-profit called the CDC Foundation. Um, people on the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or the ASIP Committee, to a person, with the exception of the military guy, uh, IPAC did a deep dive on this to try to find out whether they had conflicts of interest. To a person, they have financial vested interests in pharmaceutical companies that make vaccines. And so this is why people are hanging their flags upside down over vaccines because, you know, they're free to experiment on us without any liability and they control the regulatory process. That's fascism. That's absolute abject American style fascism. Mm-hmm. You know, people think fascism is where the, you know, the government runs the corporations. Flip that around. That's American style capitalist fascism. They're capitalism where they're capitalizing on being in control of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a, you know, red, white, and blue American, you know, I'm freedom-loving American. I want people to have freedom of choice. I want people to work the way they want to work. I want people to be able to make money and capitalize ethically and all the rest. But so here's CDC. They're saying, we're supposed to be the big guy. How can we take it from little Germany? We're not going to use this. And then they created their own test, and then they shipped it out. At that time, there were patients that were on the Princess Cruise ship line and other places around the world trying to get in the United States. And they're supposed to be screened by the CDC's test. They screen them and they said, okay, you have it and you don't. And then people around the country started using CDC's test. And the medical doctors started realizing that the test must be flawed because there are a lot of people that came down with coronavirus disease and died from coronavirus disease where the CDC's test said they never had it. And, and so the test was flawed. They had shipped out a flawed test and that cost us at least three weeks because they had the test back in January, January 16th. They had the test from Germany they could have used. If I was Anthony Fauci at that time, I would have fired those people that made that decision. Or if I was the HHS director, Azar, I would have fired those people that made the decision and I would have started ordering the test from Germany. Mm. Instead, they, they, they spent a week and a half explaining what went wrong and how they're going to make it right. And more time saying that, they, well, there's no bad actors here. It's just something that happened. That's, that's Fauci. He needs to resign because he didn't take control of the situation in a very deterministic manner and say, the most important thing is that we have accurate testing so we could do contact tracing. The CDC mm-hmm. screwed us. They screwed us bad because we can't do contact tracing. There's been no meaningful contact tracing in the United States. And now we have something like 30% of the cases of coronavirus in the world. New mm-hmm. York State has more deaths uh, from coronavirus than any other country. 
And we, we have the CDC to thank for that. And I'm not going to rest until those people are put out of a job, put out on the street, because they screwed us over bad. And so the, you know, the, I'm, I'm really totally against the CDC trying to validate other people's tests when they can't, when they can't create a, a test that works on their own. It's ridiculous. Right. And even before they created a, a properly functioning test during this whole nightmare at, at, towards the end of March, they finally um, validated a Roche test. Now, what's the difference between the Roche test and uh, the test that's coming out of Berlin and the test that the CDC was uh, using? Well, now there's, there's many tests that have emergency use authorization for RT-PCR and for antibodies. Oh, okay. so the, 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 the FDA specifically would not authorize emergency use of other people's tests until CDC could get a handle on how, what they're going to validate with. Mm -hmm. need something to validate these other tests with. So they did a rust job. And, you know, in 2003, the CDC actually did a good job at creating an RT-PCR test against SARS. And they, they were really super instrumental in making sure that SARS didn't get out of control. And, and they did contact tracing and they helped Canada, okay? And they boast on their website that the reason why SARS didn't get out of control is because they know how to make these great tests. Well, they screwed up. How, I don't know how this person's still cashing her paycheck or their paycheck. Anybody involved in that decision, including the director of the CDC right now, this Redfield, Redfield guy, needs to step down. They need mm -hmm. to let talented people who know what the heck they're doing, and I'm being a gentleman because it's a weekend. Uh, <laughs> you can say whatever you want on here. Right? I, I, to, to, know, to know what they're, they need people in there that, that know what they're doing and know what not to do. And that's, and we, even now, we could be saying, okay, let's order Germans, the, these German tests and the, the, everybody stop using CDC's test. We have no idea what the accuracy, specificity, pathogenic specificity, and sensitivity of the CDC's RT-PCRs test is. And I keep writing to the FDA and they haven't written back to me about it. They have no data. We have no idea what we're doing. And right. in the meantime, they're telling us all we have to stay in prison in our homes, uh, that we might need these... Um, ankle bracelets or inform the uh, uh, government that we're going to travel in certain places and also bullshit. And, uh, you know, we're free Americans and we have the right to know our own immunity status. That's why I put together the IPAC Back to Work program, which insists on in-home private antibody testing. So you know right. your IgG status to know if you are immune. You know your IgM status to know if you're infectious. That's my mm -hmm. business. I want to know. I have a very severe cold from January, mid-January until uh, the end of February. Perhaps I'm immune. Why am I taking extra precautions and spending thousands of dollars? I'm putting in a garden because I might not be able to go to the grocery store. I don't want to get sick. Okay? And I'm not a germaphobe, but I also don't want to spread it to Grace, who's my fiance. She has diabetes and she could die, 6.3% risk. Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm already immune, then I should be good to go. If she's immune, she should be good to go. But no, they don't want this to happen because they want, and, and Tony Fauci himself said it, we don't want a, a large amount of herd immunity from natural infection because they want to be the savior with their stupid vaccine. And they haven't done the animal safety testing. It's like they're on some kind of drug. It really is. It's really, really strange what these people are doing to us. And it's, not, it's going to come to a screeching halt as soon as these tests get out there because people will demand Listen, I, I tested myself at home and I'm positive. And the minute that any government official says, show me that, you can say, screw you. It's not a clinical test. It's a private test. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm fine. 
You have to take my word for it. That's American style independence and freedom. And we're mm -hmm. not going to give up our civil rights and our civil liberties. We're not sheep. We're not cattle. No matter how they try to, to make us afraid of this particular virus. If you want to get back to work and you want to know that you're no longer infectious, you want to know that you are immune, don't you think you should have a right? And who's stopping you from being able to do that? Uh, if, you're, if you're a woman and you think you're pregnant, you can take an in-home antibody test. Nobody knows you took it. If you have a kid and you're worried about drug use or a spouse, you're worried about drug use and you, you, know, you get them to pee in a cup, that's in-home safety testing, antibody mm -hmm. testing, paternity tests for crying out loud are private. You can get that done private. You go to CVS and pick up these, any of these three kits. So what I predict is in the future, there'll be COVID-19 antibody tests in CVS and people will be able to make their own adult responsible decisions without having to shut everything down for everyone. Yeah. And I heard that they were, there was a company that was close to making an antibody test and they, that it had been approved to be shipped throughout the UK but the U.S. Had, hadn't approved it yet. Well, the FDA has approved one. The company is uh, Vibrant. The first part of the company's name is Vibrant. I forget the whole company's name. And, 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 and their test looks great. It, it, it's a seven antibody test. It's not ready for, for, for home use. It's a seven antibody test that has a nine, over 99% sensitivity. They, they tested it on, on samples from 140 subjects. Uh, over 99% uh, specificity. It has 100% disease specificity. So if you have another virus, it's not going to uh, fool the test. And it has over 95% uh, user reproducibility. So uh, if you go to ipaknowledge.org, you'll see there's a plan there. It doesn't mention, it mentions one specific test of bio, biomedomics from South Korea. I'm not standing behind any recommendation for any test. I think oh, it's America. We need competition to get the price down. Mm -hmm. we, we should compete on accuracy. But um, go to ipaknowledge.org and find the IPAC statement on CDC diagnostics. On that page, there's the whole plan for IPAC's back-to-work plan. Go on the hashtag IPAC back to the number two work uh, uh, on social media, and you'll find the links. But you also go to ipaknowledge.org, the Institute for Pure Applied Knowledge, and you'll find um, all, it's laid out there. There's a Google document you can view and download and share. There's a spreadsheet that you can download that has an actual rational plan of how to interpret such tests and when you should go back to work and when you should stay home. And I say should, I mean you should decide to stay home. This is a guidance. And that's how our government needs to act here. They need to guide us, not tell us, not, you know, Bill Gates is absolutely insane if he thinks that American citizens are going to willingly have a freaking tattoo on their body that says that they're immune or an ID card or an immunity card. Any politician, anybody within the reach of my voice, you are stoned, stoned. You are out of your freaking mind if you think Americans are going to line up like sheep to get tattooed or have to carry an immunity card uh, for, for coronavirus. It's not going to happen. Yes, yeah, so these people are absolutely high, and they're high on power. Uh, you asked what drug they, they possibly are on, and that's what it is. They're high on power, and that's yeah. the way to interpret any of this, uh, at least the government reaction. Um, the one, one last thing I wanted to touch base with you on was – I had read some articles um, probably early last month that had referenced the possibility of this virus being in the United States since August. Uh, 
And I think I had heard you say, it might've been somebody else, but I thought it was you that said that you suspect that it got, it landed in the U.S. somewhere between late November and early December based upon the curvature that the U.S. is facing. What, what, uh, where can we go to find out more about that? And what information do you know about that? I think the name of the man that I'm citing is Trevor Hastings. Uh, and he's on Twitter, T-R-E-V-O-R. It wasn't a peer-reviewed analysis, but he did a molecular clock study where he looked mm. at the number of mutations and the differences um, in, in the rate at which they were happening. And uh, the, the, basically the diversification of the virus and he traced back the time point zero sometime, no, no earlier than early November. And so this thing jumped into humans, according to Trevor, whose work I respect. He's very objective. He doesn't have, to my knowledge, any financial conflicts of interest or any reason to try to make people think that. Excuse me. And I'd like to have him on my podcast, uh, Unbreaking Science, and talk about this. But um, my, my, my understanding is that, you know, his molecular clock is consistent with the timing of the timeline that the Chinese have set. And a lot of people said, yeah, I remember that I was really sick back in August, November, December. It could have been that. Well, if we have in-home <coughs> antibody testing, you could prick your finger and you could know whether you had it. Right. And the timing would become irrelevant. And, mm -hmm. you know, we know that the CDC uh, has no interest in fostering or facilitating antibody testing for this because they want um, their 1980, 1990s style RT-PCR old-fashioned technology, you know, outdated technology and contact tracing to put them in the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so this is how it needs to go. Um, and the American citizens need to stand up as one people. We need to contact our legislators and our representatives and we need to say, I want to know, I demand to know my private immune status. And go to, I, again, hashtag IPAC back to work and, and get behind it. Uh, the reality is that coronavirus, this particular coronavirus may have attempted to come into humanity thousands of times before. It just happened to take hold this time with the right constellation mutations that made it transmissible. Okay. Well, I want to um, I want to let you go because I know that you're a busy guy and you you got a lot going on, and I appreciate your time. But I want you any any final thoughts and uh, especially on the CDC and anything that we didn't touch on as far as their their malfeasance that you want to make sure that people understand. Well, look at my. I want to talk about the crystal ball that I have. Crystal ball tells me that in a couple of weeks' time, American citizens are going to just get their get out their car keys, get dressed, and go to work. Right. This, this is mm. in, in America, we have a proud history of people wanting to work in the factories and for various reasons, factories shutting themselves down. There are a couple of instances in the Pittsburgh area where they, you know, they, they decided to act like unions and then they showed up and they broke into the factory and they put the factory to work against the boss's wishes because they were like, this is stupid. You guys are being assholes. Um, what I want to say is. There's a rational way out of this where the government won't have any reason to blow back with a crackdown. And I think people are really concerned. I know a lot of people are worried if they see a National Guardsman that the National Guardsman is going to come in and take your Bible and your gun and inject you with the vaccine. That's not what they're there for. The National Guardsmen are your sons and daughters in your states, and they're there to feed the elderly. If, if it comes to it, you're going to see them. That's what they should be doing. If they're doing anything else, then impeach your government. 
impeach the governor of your state if the National Guards do anything other than uh, uh, emergency assistance. Impeach them right away. But um, what, I, what I want to say is that the rational path forward is not wait around 18 months and commit economic suicide and wait for a vaccine that might kill us all mm -hmm. through, a, you know, through pathogenic priming. The rational plan forward is not you know, tell the government to go screw itself and head out in the streets. Mm -hmm. To me, the rational plan forward, knowing that this is a serious virus, it's not a nothing burger virus, um, is in-home safety testing. I, I, I can't say that enough. If you feel that it's not going to work because the government's going to take control of it and you're defeatist, <clears throat> then just stay out of the conversation and let the rest of us put us on a, a rational path and make it happen. I need everybody to call their state and federal representatives and send them by email, send it through their website, call them up and tell them, I want the IPAC back to work program, ipaknowledge.org, and tell them Dr. Jack sent you. And unless and until I get on national news, this is not gonna happen. And the only way I'm gonna get on national news is as everybody starts talking about it and pointing to the IPAC back to work program. This is right. not about my, me getting attention, folks. This is not about me making any money either. This is 100% about what I think is the most logical and rational thing. People could go to work tomorrow if you could test yourself today. Think about it. If you've never had the virus, you're not immune, and you want to take the risk of the infection, and you know that everybody else is testing and screening themselves, or a lot of people are testing and screening themselves, so they're not showing up with infection, boy, that would be a really psycho big psychological relief. And then we could all you know, let our hair down a little bit and get back to work. This idea that we could just snap our fingers and say, this is the day we're all going to go back to work is that's, that's going to lead to another surge. That's going to be a disaster. And then the other side, the other is the vaccinologists are going to say, see, we told you. So independent testing, private testing in your home is, is uh, what I really want people to uh, get behind. And if you want more information, get out your cell phone or write this down and text IPAC, I-P-A-K, to the number 474747. You'll get regular updates, not every day, maybe once a, once every two weeks, uh, from IPAC on, on late-breaking developments on our research and information on this IPAC Back to Work program. So let's let's get this thing done. Let's let's get our civil rights back and let's get our American-style freedom and independence um, and trust each other. We have to trust other American adults uh, uh, to, 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 to do the right thing, given the information that, that, that they have. Sure, there are going to be some jackasses that don't do the right thing, but we're, we're, we've got to play the percentages. So I guess it boils down to, do we think that we need a big-ass government that's going to make us do the right thing, or are people fundamentally good, or are they fundamentally selfish? We absolutely have to extend uh, at least two weeks of continuous sick days in the era of COVID-19. All of our workplaces have to adjust how we handle the, the rules of sick days. We have to allow that a person says, guess what? I, I feel fine, but I tested it. Guess what? I'm positive. And it's not like an RT-PCR test where it's going to be a false positive. It's going to be real. Those things are very accurate. And so you call your boss and you say, listen, I'm sorry, I tested positive. Uh, or you just say, I need, my, I need to implement my two-week period. When you get your sick day, you don't tell your boss every, everything about your diagnosis. They can put two and two together and figure out why you need two weeks off. And so I think all workplaces should immediately, you know, announce to their workers that we're now going to have, you get four weeks off and they, they can all be consumerous uh, days off uh, uh, twice a year. And if you need more, then you got to talk to us. That seems to be reasonable.
Mm. Yeah, and and you, you did bring up something that's been really concerning uh, recently is the way that people are starting to look at, at their fellow citizens. And it's almost like everybody's a suspect. Everybody's a potential terrorist nowadays. You know, it, it's, it's this really strange kind of feel out there, in, especially um, in the trucking world. I see it in the truck stops. So, um, yeah, I, I really, like you said, I think it's better to trust that your, your fellow citizens are capable of making rational decisions and making good choices and, and trust that more than it's, uh, than trusting the government's going to make the right decision for you. Uh, I really believe that. Yeah. I, 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 I'm glad you feel that way. I know a lot of people are going to be skeptical about it, but, um, we need, therefore need to build in the social safety marks, uh, you know, this, this, the, the, the steam valves. I want to put out there the idea that, especially in the trucking world, you know, you guys do long hours, you're the, the, the lifeblood of the country to keep us flowing. And it's anxiety, long hours of anxiety, monotonous work. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I want to thank all the truckers out there for, for, for keeping us going. You're, you're, uh, uh, you're quite heroic that way. And what I want to say is, well, it's going to get worse because the kids from 1999 onward are jacked full of much more aluminum from vaccines than the rest of us. So if there's young kids that are getting into the trucking industry, understand that they have really high rates of ADHD and attention, you know, attention deficit, hyperactivity. It, it's, they're, very, they're a different type of person, really. And I don't mm-hmm. mean that you shouldn't trust them, but I want you to take them under your wing and show them ropes because they need extra, they need a little bit of extra time, honestly, for the aluminum to work its way out of their system. I think we outgrow that childhood vaccination a little bit. Um, yeah. but it's ridiculous. There's 70, 72 shots by the time you're 16 years old. And um, in, in IPAC's research, we found that um, in the first six months of life on the current CDC schedule, um, first seven months of life, kids are spending 70% of their days on aluminum toxicity. Mm-hmm. In the first two years of life, while they're trying to do these massive amounts of neurodevelopmental and learning and everything else, you're spending one out of four days in aluminum toxicity. So that's peer-reviewed research by IPAC. And if you know you want to see independent research and you want Tommy to have more interesting guests like me, you know, make sure that you get behind what Tommy's doing and make sure you get behind IPAC. Uh, this is I do research in the public interest. I do biomedical research only so the public can know their own disposition on what's going on. I'm not funded by government, I'm not funded by um, the CIA, I'm not funded by, you know, the, the, the NIH, the CDC, and I'm not funded by pharma. I'm here with the independent scientist message that we, we can do science without profit motive, and we can know a hell of a lot more uh, if we put people first and we put our health first. And so the byline, the tagline for IPAC is to reduce human pain and suffering through knowledge. That's what I'm, I'm about 100%, Tommy, and I'm so grateful that you had me on your show. Oh, I really appreciate it. Make sure that you, you give any plugs. Let, let us know about your podcast and uh, the IPAC website one more time and anywhere else that people can find you. Sure. You go to ipaknowledge.org for IPAC. I have a blog if you like to read, jameslyonsweiler.com, which, by the way, all my articles, I'm not the type of person, if you redistribute or republish my article, I'm not going to spark at that. All of my content is wide open for sharing if you think it's worth sharing on your own blog. Um, and uh, you, that's jameslyonsweiler.com. 
you can um, find me on my own video podcast on YouTube and Facebook and so on uh, at WWDNYK Studios, WWDNYK Studios. That stands for What We Do Not Yet Know Studios with the podcast Unbreaking Science. You know, 2020 is supposed to be a big year where, you know, we broke out of the, the, the stronghold of forced vaccinations um, for our kids and they were going to move towards adult vaccinations. There are people that are convinced that this coronavirus scenario is an excuse, you know, it is, is the plan, is part of the master plan. That stops you from thinking critically and strategically to say that they have the master plan because you don't know what a, what if it's just a disaster and like it's, uh, the, the expression is, this never let a good disaster go to waste. Of course, they're going to capitalize on it. Yeah. We need to push back. And I'm going to tell you right now, private in-home testing will take the wind out of their sails for a vaccine program. It'll take their wind out of their sails for mandatory testing. It'll take the wind out of their sails for the immunity ID. No, we have to stand up and say, this is America's style freedom. We're going to stand by it. So thanks again, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, Dr. Jack. I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy and you have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'll talk to you All soon. right, buddy. Hey, yes, sir. That was Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. And I am Tommy Salmons. Late.